Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica. And this is Remembering the Misremembered. On August 18, 1971, more than 2,000 people piled into St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Midtown Manhattan. Aretha Franklin would perform a soulful, sullen version of the gospel tune, Never Grow Old. Stevie Wonder would also sing and the Reverend Jesse Jackson would deliver the eulogy. Arthur Prysock, Brooke Benton, the Isley Brothers, Sissy Houston, Dwayne Allman, and Dizzy Gillespie were also among those in attendance. They were there to remember the great saxophonist, King Curtis, an extraordinarily talented musician who soulfully melded jazz, pop, and R&B together. He was very well respected in the music industry, as you can see from the people at his funeral. He played on releases from artists as diverse as Buddy Holly, and Sam Cooke, and inspiring acts like the Allman Brothers. He actually worked with Dwayne Allman and the Rolling Stones. Aretha Franklin had said that Curtis's saxophone playing spoke to her personally. Among other projects, they collaborated when they performed live at the Fillmore East in March 1971 with King Curtis working as her musical director. You heard King Curtis tonight, heard us do our thing together, the Queen of Soul said from the stage, at the end of the three-night engagement where they recorded live at the Fillmore East. We're gonna do our thing for years to come, I imagine. Less than six months later, King Curtis was sadly and senselessly taken away at just 37 years old. So who was King Curtis? The man who grew up to be a sought-after musical director, band leader, record producer, and session musician was born Curtis Montgomery in Fort Worth, Texas on February 7, 1934. His mother was Ethel Montgomery and his father apparently wasn't in the picture. Curtis and his sister Josephine were adopted as young children by Josie and William Ousley. When Curtis was 12, he started playing saxophone. He went on to master this instrument, playing tenor, alto, and soprano sax, and he could play in a variety of different styles, rhythm and blues, jazz, rock and roll, you name it, and he could play it. Curtis turned down the chance to go to school on a music scholarship so that he could jump at the opportunity to become a part of the Lionel Hampton Band. At this time, Curtis expanded his musical palette. He learned to play guitar, and he began to write and arrange music. Curtis's style was greatly influenced by Louis Jordan, Lester Young, and two musicians who were Texans like himself, Arnett Cobb and Illinois Jacquette. At 18, Curtis moved to New York City, becoming a session musician. He recorded for several labels, ADCO, Capital, Enjoy, and Prestige, and he garnered a reputation for his versatility, syncopated and percussive style, his ability to frame melodies and aptitude for making a saxophone sing and swing. He worked with a vast array of talent at this time, including Nat Adderley and Wynton Kelly, Buddy Holly, Waylon Jennings, even Andy Williams. He worked with the coasters on the songs Yakety Yak and Charlie Brown. He backed singer Laverne Baker on I Cried a Tear, with his sax serving as a second voice. Curtis went by Curtis Ousley for about a decade before being known professionally as King Curtis. He showed the world that he was a soul master. 
I believe it was in the 1960s that King Curtis put together a band called the Kingpins, composed of young musicians Richard T., Cornell Dupree, Jerry Jamat, and Bernard Purdy. In 1964, Curtis, Curtis's composition Soul Serenade was released on Capitol Records. King Curtis signed to Atlantic Records in 1965, where he recorded Memphis Soul Stew and Ode to Billy Joe. In 1966, he recorded with and performed live with Jimi Hendrix. Curtis was instrumental in bringing Donny Hathaway to the attention of the heads of Atlantic Records, and Donny went on to sign with the Atlantic Records subsidiary, ATCO. King Curtis and his band, the Kingpins, opened for the, Be the Beatles for the 1965 Shea Stadium performance. In 1970, he won a Grammy for Best R&B Instrumental Performance for Games People Play. In February of 1971, King Curtis began to work with Sam Moore, who was one half of the soul duo Sam and Dave. Curtis was supposed to produce Sam's album, which was shelved for 31 years. I mentioned that King Curtis was the saxophonist for Aretha Franklin's Fillmore East album. King Curtis also released his own live Fillmore East album from this engagement. He played the Montreux Jazz Festival on the Swiss Riviera in June of 1971. In July, Curtis recorded saxophone solos for John Lennon's Imagine. Those songs were It's So Hard and I Don't Want to Be a Soldier. It seemed like his career was just soaring, <clears throat> just continuing to soar, but it all ended around midnight on August 13th, 1971. The story goes that he was carrying an air conditioning unit into his brownstone apartment located on West 86th Street in New York City. He encountered two junkies getting high on the steps of the apartment. I don't know for sure, but it seems like King Curtis and the guys probably had had confrontations before. But when Curtis asked the guys to move so he could carry the air conditioner into his apartment, they refused to move and an argument ensued and quickly escalated into a fist fight between King Curtis, who was known to have a temper, and one of the men, 26-year-old Juan Montañez. Then suddenly Juan produced a shiv or shank of some sort and he stabbed Curtis in the chest with it. Curtis wrestled the knife away from Juan and managed to stab him four times before collapsing on the floor. Montañez managed to stagger away from the scene. King Curtis was taken to Roosevelt Hospital where the 37-year-old sax master died from his wounds less than an hour later. Juan Montañez was also taken to Roosevelt Hospital. The police officers investigating the murder found out that another man was admitted to the hospital with stab wounds around the same time as King Curtis. They put two and two together and realized that the two stabbings were related. Montañez was arrested and charged with killing Curtis Osley. The whole music industry was saddened and shocked by this tragic turn of events. The offices of Atlantic Records were closed on the day of Curtis's funeral. King Curtis's band, the Kingpins, played Soul Serenade, one of their most popular songs. In addition to Aretha's Never Grow Old, Stevie Wonder performed Abraham, Martin, and John, and now King Curtis. In addition to Jesse Jackson preaching the funeral, he also courted controversy. 
the right reverend escorted Curtis's fiance, Modine Broughton, into the funeral, sitting her in a pew to the left side in front of the casket, while King Curtis's wife, yes, his wife, Ethelyn Ousley, was seated on the right side. Mrs. Ousley understandably felt disrespected. I'm the last person to defend Jesse Jackson, but Curtis and Ethelene had been legally separated for seven years and were getting a divorce. Maybe the right reverend thought that Mr. and Mrs. Ousley were already divorced. I don't know. I was surprised at the action of Reverend Jackson, Ethelene Ousley, a former shake dancer, said angrily. Being a clergyman and all, I resented him walking into the church with a woman that was not Curtis's wife, and I was there. She then walked out of the services with the couple's son, 11-year-old Curtis Jr. In March of 1972, Juan Montañez's charge was reduced from second-degree murder to second-degree manslaughter in exchange for pleading guilty. On December 5, 1977, Montañez was released from jail for good behavior. In the Genius Aretha series, they alluded to King Curtis possibly having romantic feelings for the Queen of Soul. I don't know if that was a real thing or if it was just inserted for a dramatic effect. King Curtis was buried in a red granite-fronted wall crypt in the West Gallery of Forsythia Court Mausoleum at Pine Lawn Memorial Park in Farmingdale, New Jersey. This cemetery also holds musicians Count Basie and John Coltrane. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the year 2000. He is portrayed in the Buddy Holly story by Craig White and in the Genius Aretha series by Marquis Richardson. If you feel so led, light a candle for King Curtis. He was very talented and left us at an early age in a terrible way. Check out his music too. I'm Monica and this is Remembering the Misremembered and I will see you soon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica and this is Remembering the Misremembered. Today we talk about Alberta King and her son A.D. King and they are the mother and brother, respectively, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. She was called the best mother in the world by her most famous offspring. She was more than just the mother of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Alberta King was a formidable woman in her own right. Wife, mother, preacher's wife, musician, and educator. She was also a woman who endured great sorrow. She lived through the assassination of her elder son. A little more than a year later, she buried her second son, A.D., whose demise is more mysterious. These heartbreaking tragedies served as eerie foreshadowing to her own brutal slaying while playing the organ at her family's church. The matriarch of the King family was born Alberta Christine Williams in Atlanta, Georgia on September 13, 1904. She was the only surviving child of Adam Daniel Williams, pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, and Jenny Celeste Parks Williams, a missionary. The fate of her siblings is unknown. 
Alberta's parents were business-minded people who stressed the importance of black people owning businesses and property. This was radical in the early 20th century, a time when a low ceiling hung over the dreams of black people. It was also quite dangerous. Against the odds, Alberta grew up to be a woman who valued education. After graduating from high school at the Spelman Seminary, she then enrolled in Hampton Normal and Industrial Institute, which is now Hampton University, and obtained her teaching certificate in 1924. She would go on to obtain her BA degree from Morris Brown College in 1938. Alberta's teaching career didn't last long, though. In those days, female te teachers were not allowed to teach unless they were unmarried. Alberta had announced her engagement to her longtime boyfriend, a young preacher named Michael King. Alberta and Michael were married on Thanksgiving Day, 1926. After the wedding, the young couple lived with Alberta's parents and started their family, which would consist of three children in three years. Daughter Willie Christine, known as Christine, born September 11, 1927. Michael Jr. was born January 15, 1929. And the youngest child, Alfred Daniel Williams King, known as A.D., was born July 30, 1930. She was soft-spoken and possessed a quiet strength that her family could rely on. Adam Daniel Williams died in 1931, and Michael King took over as pastor of Ebenezer. Alberta founded the church's choir, also becoming the church organist in 1932, and she maintained this position for 40 years. Following a trip to Germany in 1934, Michael King changed his name and that of their elder son to Martin Luther King after the German Reformation leader. From 1950 to 1962, Alberta served as organist for the Women's Auxiliary of the National Baptist Convention. She was also active in the YWCA, the NAACP, and the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Alberta was greatly loved by her children and worked hard to instill a strong sense of self-respect in all three of them. Martin crowned her the best mother in the world and wrote about her in glowing terms in a college essay, crediting her with maintaining a harmonious and congenial home situation. By the late 1960s, the King family tragically began to decimate. On April 4, 1968, her elder son, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was assassinated on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. In spite of her own considerable pain, she was a source of strength for her family during this time of unimaginable heartbreak. The King family was struck with another irrevocable blow on July 21, 1969, when the second son, A.D., was found dead in a swimming pool. On June 30, 1974, Alberta Williams King was playing the Lord's Prayer on the organ during that morning Sunday service at Ebenezer Baptist Church. I don't know why she happened to be playing organ on this particular Sunday morning. She had retired from being the church's organist two years prior. But anyway, a young black man, later identified as Marcus Wayne Chenault of Dayton, Ohio, stood up and announced, quote, you must stop this. I'm tired of all this. I'm taking over this morning, end of quote. The delirious young man was also reported to have said, quote, I'm going to kill everybody in here. They did this to me in the war, end of quote. Then he took out two pistols and spent the next 90 seconds shooting relentlessly. Before Chenault was disarmed, three people were hit with bullets, including 69-year-old Alberta Williams King. She was shot in the head. A 69-year-old church deacon was also killed. 
a retired former school teacher, was wounded in the attack but survived. Dr. Christine King Ferris, Alberta's daughter, was quoted as saying that it was like a scene out of a bad movie. Alberta King was barely alive when she arrived at Grady Memorial Hospital and was pronounced dead shortly afterward, leaving behind her husband, a daughter, and a badly shaken church, home, and community. Martin Luther King Sr., known affectionately as Daddy King, was married to Alberta for 47 years. He never remarried. He lived with her brutal death and the untimely deaths of both of their sons until his own death from a heart attack on November 11, 1984, five weeks shy of his 85th birthday. Their daughter, 94-year-old Dr. Christine King Ferris, is the only surviving child from their union. It was later reported that Marcus Wayne Chenault was a 23-year-old black Hebrew Israelite, and he was quoted as saying, all Christians are my enemies. He also said, quote, black ministers are a menace to black people, end of quote. Chenault had been mentored by Reverend Hananiah E. Israel, who taught that black civil rights activists and black church leaders were evil and deceptive. He denied being an advocate of violence against them, though. Allegedly, Chenault originally planned to assassinate Reverend Jesse Jackson in Chicago, but changed his mind. Instead, he traveled to Atlanta with hopes to kill Martin Luther King Sr. As fate would have it, Daddy King happened not to be there on that particular Sunday. There were some people at Ebenezer who claimed that Chenault asked some of the members to identify Mrs. King for him, indicating that he specifically set out to shoot and kill a member of the King family. He was eventually convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to death. He was later resentenced to life in prison, due in large part to the King family being against the death penalty. He died from complications of a stroke on August 19, 1995 at the age of 44. Alberta King is buried at Southview Cemetery in Atlanta. Now, Alfred Daniel Williams King, known as A.D. King, lived in the shadow of his older brother Martin, a.k.a. M.L. He happily took a back seat behind his brother, who became the face of the nonviolence movement that they had dedicated their lives to. A.D. was staunchly in his brother's corner. He was his brother's keeper. A.D. King was an accomplished civil rights activist, preacher, and strategist in his own right with accomplishments of his own. Those accomplishments include organizing civil rights active activities in the various southern cities where the Kings and fellow activists worked together to fight for the rights of black people and of all people. With his brother, A.D. was known as one half of the Sons of Thunder, referencing the fiery preaching style they shared. Earlier in his life, he didn't want anything to do with preaching nor academia, being considered rougher around the edges than his brother. A bit of a rebel, A.D.'s devotion to his brother was far-reaching and extended beyond the grave. When the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, A.D. vowed to get to the bottom of what really happened, who was really behind the murder of his widely beloved brother. He did not buy the official story and wasn't shy about letting it be known. Like his brother, he was not intimidated by the threat of death. A.D.'s daughter Alvita said that she overheard her father heatedly express these sentiments during a telephone call. The very next day he was found dead under mysterious circumstances. Could it be that his determination to get to the truth about his brother led to his own death? As I said in the Alberta King segment, 
Alfred Daniel Williams King was born a year and a half after his brother on July 30th, 1930. His parents' youngest child. Blessed with a mind of his own, he did not go to college right away. On June 17, 1950, 19-year-old A.D. married his pregnant girlfriend, Naomi Barber, a member of the family's church. They went on to have five children, Alveda, Alfred Jr., Derek, Darlene, and Vernon. A.D. worked alongside his father at Ebenezer Baptist Church. 1959 was an eventful year for him. That year, he graduated from Morehouse College and became pastor of Mount Vernon First Baptist Church. Described as a sleeping giant, A.D. was so low-key that many people to this day are not aware of his existence. They don't know that Martin Luther King even had a brother. MLK was an impenetrable, larger-than-life figure. A.D., on the other hand, was more relatable. A.D. worked on the ground, communing with regular, everyday people. He was considered a warrior despite his nonviolent stance. Gifted in connecting with the youth, he inspired youngsters to commit to civil rights. In 1963, A.D. became one of the leaders of the Birmingham Campaign, which was put in place to bring awareness to the efforts of black people trying to integrate Birmingham, Alabama. At the time, he was a pastor of First Baptist Church of Inslee in Birmingham. On May 11, 1963, A.D.'s family home was firebombed. Miraculously, they were not killed. A.D. led a prayer march in Birmingham just days later. In spite of all the arrests, bombings, dog sickings, and shootings, A.D. urged people to stand up for their rights while being true to nonviolent values. He moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where he served as pastor of Zion Baptist Church, continuing the fight and campaigning for an open housing ordinance in Kentucky through the Kentucky Christian Leadership Conference. He founded this organization and served as its chairman from 1965 to 1968. The housing ordinance was the forerunner of the Fair Housing Act that was signed into law by President Johnson in 1968. A.D. was utterly devastated by the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4, 1968. He was in Memphis with his brother and other preachers fighting for the rights of black sanitation workers in the city. His room at the motel was right under that of Martin's. Martin's was in room 306. They were headed to the home of another preacher for dinner when MLK was fatally shot. A.D. was in such a state of shock and emotional turmoil when he realized that his brother was wounded and likely dead, although he wouldn't be officially pronounced dead until an hour later, that he had to be physically restrained by those around him. When Dr. King was killed, he was working on a sermon called Why America May Go to Hell. He didn't live to deliver it, so his brother preached it in his place, and it is said that he preached it dynamically. In September of 1968, A.D. became co-pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, even as he struggled with depression and alcoholism. It had been rumored that A.D. might be ready to take over the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but he wasn't interested. On July 21, 1969, Alfred Daniel Williams King was found dead in his swimming pool. He was nine days shy of his 39th birthday. His son, Derek, happened to look out the window and noticed his body face down in the water, clad in only his underwear. Derek said that he overheard a medical worker say there was no water in A.D.'s lungs, that he was dead before his body hit the water. 
Suicide was suspected, as was a heart attack. Drowning was the official official cause, although A.D. was a superior swimmer. His autopsy report has never been made public. A.D.'s wife, Naomi, and two of their kids were vacationing in Jamaica with Coretta Scott King and two of her kids when A.D. died at their home in Atlanta. The family believes that there was some kind of foul play involved. Daddy King went to his grave believing that both of his sons were murdered. Naomi King said there was no doubt in her mind that the system killed her husband. Even if it was a heart attack, the pressure of the civil rights activist lifestyle could be lethal. If it was suicide, it would still be due to that pressure. There's been a lot of talk about a heart attack and the fact that three of A.D.'s children died of heart ailments in young ages, including a 20-year-old, and it seems to lend credence to that. Daddy King died of a reported heart attack. Granted, he was pushing 85. So, you know, there are, there is a record of heart problems in the family. But I do wonder, since when does a heart attack cause dark ring-like neck bruises and forehead bruises like the ones Naomi King saw on her husband's dead body? Since when does a simple drowning cause all of that? It really does make you wonder. Naomi King, who is still living and 90 years old as I record this, wrote a book about her husband and her brother-in-law called A.D. King and M.L. King, Two Brothers Who Dared to Dream. There's also a book written by Anna Maleka Tubbs called Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. And since it is Black History Month, those books should be uh, easier to find than at other times of the year. Anyway, I am Monica. This is Remembering the Misremembered, and I will see you soon.